0: Good evening, you're listening to Useless and Hard, um, episode number seven. And in this episode, I speak with Casey Rashto. Casey is, uh, she's a poet and she's my neighbor and she's the winner of the first a house house here in Banglatown. Uh, Casey is someone who I have an immense amount of respect for. I think that she she manages to always be really intelligent outspoken human and you know funny all at once (laughs) and that's that's hard to pull off i don't think a lot of people can do that yeah you know her book came out just last week and it's great and yeah uh, in this conversation we talk about it so i hope you enjoy here it is, me and Casey Roshto. I have I have high hopes for Kanye in general. I, I mean, maybe he will run for president in 2020, and that'll be great.
1: You know, I would rather see Kanye's presidential run than Donald Trump's.
0: I mean, exactly. I think that <laughs> Trump has proved that anyone could probably, like, anyone who's in the media spotlight and, like, good at talking shit as much as he is has a chance, which really gives Kanye, like, you know, I think a reasonable shot.
1: I think so, too.
0: <laughs>
1: but who knows? But who knows? knows? What would Kanye's platform even really
0: be? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I have no idea. But what the fuck is Donald Trump's? He doesn't know about politics. That's I mean, it true. That doesn't sac- make any equally sense. equally
1: true. It's just that he says certain things that, you know, can sound good in, uh, to certain people if they're xenophobic or racist or whatever. It's right. just like Kanye, I feel like, would just be like, we're all millennials. And I'm running on a platform of dopeness. And everybody would be like, that's not, that's <laughs> not anything.
0: <laughs> all right. So... I am here at uh the home of Casey Roshto. How do you say it?
1: That's the that's the correct way to say it. Cool. So my family says it Rashito, but it's it should be two syllables. Cool. Yeah.
0: I, I'm proud of myself. <laughs> um and Casey is a poet and teacher in Detroit. She Ran, won the first Write-A-House. Uh, Write-A-House is a nonprofit organization that gives houses away to writers in Detroit. And she is uh, kicking ass and about to get a book published um, called The Dozens, which I read. And we're going to talk about that and we'll just talk about her life in general. Um, so, Casey. Mm-hmm. How did you get here and what do you do?
1: How did I get here? <laughs> How did I get here? Well, 30 years ago. Uh, I was living in Brooklyn and I wanted to leave. And I saw this, uh, I saw sort of posts about Ride a House on Facebook. And I thought, "There's that's an interesting idea. I will apply to that, I guess. And, uh, I won, so I won right a house's first house and moved here in November 2014. Yeah. Cause it's 2016 now. And so I've been here for a little over a year and a half. And what I do is sort of a hodgepodge of things, but mostly I, I teach, I work for, uh, inside out literary arts, which is a nonprofit in Detroit that, uh, the goal is to have a poet in every school, and so I teach poetry in an all girls high school not too far from here. And then is th- it a private school? No, it's a public. It's the only uh, public single gender school in the state. It used to be Northern High School, and then at a certain point, I think the the principal of the school now, Principal Hibler, uh it was sort of her dream to have this all girls school. So it's K through twelve. Uh, and it's been open for a few years and yeah, so I, I, I teach in five different classrooms. I work in an after-school sort of like poetry club, uh, capacity doing sort of spoken word stuff. And then at the end of the year, we put together a publication for the, all the classes that, uh, Inside Out has worked in so that the, the students will see like, Oh, I got this cool book. I'm an actual published author yeah Uh,
0: yeah yeah that's badass i mean uh, the the interesting thing about working with people at like who are young is that you 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 can never be sure like what this might do for them like Mm -hmm. just being able to see that you know just seeing themselves published like could change lives you know a lot of people's lives it won't change but like if but there's like always that hope that like a handful of people are gonna like really remember that experience Mm -hmm. that's rad yeah um so and does that feed your own work at all
1: um no i mean that's a hard question because it's it's not so much the way that they write necessarily i think uh there are times i would say especially working with like the poetry club where it's like these these girls love to write you know and sometimes like i'll i'll just watch them sit and just like Go in for five, ten minutes, just writing on the page, and turn around, and uh, what they produced as a first draft. I'm like, "What? How did you do that?" And in cer- there's a certain level of like urgency to what they're saying and how they say it uh, that I think inspires me. I'm often impressed by where they take things. Where I, I'll I'll give a prompt. And I'll expect to see like poems looking one way. And then when I get the poems back, I'll just be like, whoa, you took this a totally different direction than I even like ever could have imagined.
0: Can you think of just like an example?
1: So <laughs> this is gonna be real stupid, but it's true. I, uh, the first day of class, I, the prompt was, uh, to Drake's hotline bling. So it's like the prompt was just ever since I blank you. Dot, dot, dot. And <laughs> this is why this is where it gets silly. So, one of my students uh, did this whole like 16 bars <laughs> about ever since I farted, you won't talk to me anymore. <laughs> and it was actually brilliant. It was just a, like a really brilliant parody where I was just like, well, you know, I didn't expect that this is what we we're going to do today. And I also, like, I can't tell you this is inappropriate because it's it's not really, and you also just put a lot of work into making this really silly thing, but there was craftsmanship in it, you know what I mean, so those are like when things like that happen, I'm just like, All right,, <laughs>
0: like, and you were like, Dude, we gotta record this and dub it over hotline like <laughs> and just put it up with all the other shit,
1: yeah, just like, m- we need to make a vine immediately because right. you're gonna be famous by Wednesday,
0: <laughs> so. So where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Brooklyn?
1: No, no. I grew up, uh, yeah, I grew up in Cape Cod. Uh, I was in Brooklyn for two years because I was there for grad school. Right. Let's see. I graduated from undergrad in 07, and I worked for a while. Like, uh, I worked for City Year for a year. I worked as a counselor in a group home for a couple of years. And then uh, the housing market crashed. It was around '08 that I was just like, you know what? Like, all this funding is going to cut from these programs. I've been working here for years and gone nowhere. And I don't want to get an MSW. I don't feel like actually being a social worker. Um, and I was good at my job, but I just was like, this is not really what I want to be doing. So I applied to grad school. And initially, I was going to try to go to law school. I was like, that'll solve all these problems in my life. So I'll become a lawyer. And then I sort of chickened out of that almost immediately. Uh, but I applied to the history program at Northeastern and was there on a full scholarship. And then shit went south, and I uh, ended up not being able to go back because uh, I would, you know, I was in the hospital for almost a month, and they took my scholarship away. So once that happened, I I like left Boston and I lived in Providence for a year. When I was twenty six, and it was sort of like the lost year. Uh, <laughs> I didn't wasn't doing anything particularly like interesting. Just reapplied to grad school, and that's when I got into the new school. So, I like had a year of a master's, but it wasn't enough to like really count towards anything. I just had to start all over.
0: Damn, yeah. <laughs> it sucked. Yeah. yeah, I guess. Can we start with the title of the book, mm-hmm. like the dozens? I, I mean, it, it's a reference that came up a couple times, so I sort of have a, a, not, like a vague understanding of what playing the dozens means, but I also wasn't sure how it became the title.
1: Oh, okay. It was, a, it was an idea I'd, I'd had for years, actually. The name of the book was just an idea that I had at some point, actually around the time like before I went into the hospital, And I knew it was this project I wanted to work on, uh, where the Dustin's, it's like, it's such a present thing, I think, in black culture, but the reference may be lost elsewhere. But uh, for a long time, like, I was on a slam team at one point that was all women. And we tried to, like, do a piece that was... It wasn't even anti-the-dozens. It was just trying to, like, get away from this idea of, like, your mama jokes or whatever. So it was something that had just, like, the seed of it had been in my brain for a minute. And then I had the idea of, okay, if I called it that, I would just have three sets of 12 poems. And it would be past, present, and future. So that was sort of the... I had that idea initially for the layout of the book from the beginning. And then it ended up being four sets of twelve poems, um, and it's just this idea of sort of like shit talking. What's actually wrong, as opposed to just like shit talking to make somebody else tougher. It's like well, we could uh, we could actually like be productive with criticism in certain ways.
0: And and where did the last like whose clock come from?
1: That was oh, it was like that section. It became about, you know, it was like past, present, future. But then you think of time in this chronological fashion, and I, I've always thought that was the moment, right, for capitalism. That every, it kind of like got everybody is when everybody got on this the schedule of what this is what we're doing. So it's like who's who says this is what time it is, right? So, and like just thinking about time in these nonlinear ways, and I think that set of poems in the book, that section, are uh largely poems that I see as like not particularly fixed in past, present, or future, it could sort of like vacillate between times.
0: So <laughs> you're sitting on my notes cat the he does not care, even <laughs> a little bit. Part of what interested me was about like the 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 emotional tone and the pacing and it was definitely felt like there was like a a work towards balance there where like some some poems are angry, some poems are goofy, some poems there's a clear like real hope to them. And and how you like tr- just talking about how you tried to balance those feelings.
1: I uh one of the first, before the book was in the shape that it's in now, I uh, I gave it to my friend Fatima, and she was just like, these poems are good, but this is boring, <laughs> these poems are too long, and it, I was like, she's right, you know, like, once I looked at it, and I, I could see it sort of more from her perspective, I recognized this sort of, like, need to, to create a balance, um in the In the flow of things, and also that's also just sort of the way you know it's like that is truly a collection of ways that I feel on any given day, but they right. all sort of uh they play off each other
0: yeah that that statement it's a collection of ways I feel on any given day helps like oh yeah, I see that like are yeah. not just you know <laughs> right one thing um that. And and then I guess a similar question is the balance of um, personal narrative. Personal, there's like part of it's personal narrative, right? There are parts where like that are explicitly, fairly evidently like your life, Mm -hmm. and then parts where I'm not sure, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. Where it's like, oh, maybe this is just a story that she came up with, Mm -hmm. like, or related to someone else, or maybe this is her life. Like, I really don't know. Right. And then there are some that are just more like, oh, here's like a playful idea, like. Gucci, Sun Ra speaks to Gucci Mane. Right. Where he's just like, oh, she was just sitting around and was like, this is funny. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that was my assumption with that piece. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, Just like, you know, I guess how you think about that or what you wanted to do with that. Or if like all of one section got written at one time, like, oh, I'm writing poems about myself at this moment, and then they got broken up with the others, or if it kind of just plays back and forth constantly. Mm,
1: Yes and no. I think that first, the first section of the book that was passed... Uh, in the beginning, that was about half personal poems and half sort of more political. And I sort of played with it a little bit. And then at a certain point, uh, I scrapped, like, 50% of the poems that were in the manuscript and just threw them out the window and wrote new ones and put new ones, like, into their place. Um, So through the course of that sort of like sort of the, at one point in the latter, I forget which section it's in the, um the essay about being in the psych ward that was a totally different essay. That was way more political at one point. And at a certain point, I think what I was trying to do was break up this idea of the, the voice of the narrator within the text. Cause I think a lot of those poems seem pretty sure of themselves It was just like, shit's fucked up, we gotta change it, we gotta change it now, and I have the answers, and if I were president, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And at a certain point, I was just like, I don't actually fucking know. Like, if I was in charge, who knows what would happen. Uh, But to just sort of, uh, I think, a nod to the reader of, like, who I actually am, and, like, maybe why I have the opinions that I have. Or how the things, the reason why these things, I'm writing about these things in, in sort of a more abstract way, is in part because of these experiences that I've had. Um, and so I tried to do that as evenly as I could, because uh, I think that that it's just more a more well-rounded text.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that really works. I mean, I was thinking like I thought a lot about that as I read it.
1: Because I think it, it's like the difference between a book of poems and a manifesto. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't want it to be a manifesto.
0: Yeah, and that's what I got out of Citizen. But there was a point where I was like, "Okay, I see what this is," and it's like, and and then I lost interest for some respects.
1: Yeah, and I think also, well, I like that book, but I, I also think that there's a very, there's a very narrow lane in which she's writing about these interactions. Right, you know. So it's not even there's not really a wide variety of experiences that she's talking about in certain ways. Because they are it is all about these microaggressions.
0: And then I I just didn't understand like how the pictures were played, like mixed in with it. And that seemed fairly like unnecessary.
1: Oh, I thought that I thought the images were great. I was actually happy uh, to see a book like that. Because I I think we we don't incorporate the visual enough even though we live in a world that is, especially when you're talking about race, so based on the visual. Um, So that when you see, what is it? Is it Maria Sharpova? Whoever that white tennis player is. Right? So when you see that image of her, it uh, gives light and context to the whole conversation that Claudia Rankin's been having. And like the whole, her whole book, right, started because of uh, Tony Hoagland's, I mean, I shouldn't say it all started because of Tony Hoagland, but there was a pretty direct confrontation with this poet, Tony Hoagland, because he wrote this horrible poem about Venus Williams that was super racist. And uh, when she called him out on it, Tony Hoagland told her that he thought she was naive about race in this country. And then she bodied him with this book, so I think the images are really interesting. She references a lot of them too.
0: Yeah, I think they're mo- they're mostly referenced, definitely. you know. But I wasn't. But sometimes maybe more necessary than others. Sure.
1: Maybe they weren't all necessary, but I th- I think that, that makes it. I think that's part of what makes it kind of special. Yeah. As this sort of because one of the other things about Citizen that I wasn't even really thinking about until I was at AWP in Minneapolis is it's part of this sort of like new wave of uh genre bending that people don't really know how to classify it that is really this lyric essay and uh the forms in which that takes so i saw a panel that was like maggie nelson claudia rankin uh leslie jameson and who's the fourth person I'm not gonna remember off top, but it, it was a great panel. There was like four Grey Wolf authors, and for Claudia Rankin's book to be within that context too, I think uh, it sort it, it was able to to sort of like smoosh these the creative nonfiction audience with the, the poetry audience, which is a, its own sort of I don't know, interesting thing that's happening with it.
0: Do you feel that your book? fits in that or it's more straight poetry
1: i think it's more straight poetry i don't tend to write prose poems in that same vein you know and i think so i call uh unfinished letters that piece i call it an essay and other people are just like i don't know what this is it could be a poem it could be an essay (laughs) like i don't know if it's real i don't know you know like i've had people react to that piece i think more than a lot of other things i've had published um but that's the one piece that I'm just sort of like, I mean, you call it what you want. I don't care what genre right. like, you want to put it in. I I just care about it, you know?
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the only piece that made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, and partially because I know you and like did know that it was right. you. Like there wasn't a question about that. Right. Um, But it was like very intense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was intense to write. It was... Yeah.
0: Well, it was probably more intense to experience. Sure. Well, that too. <laughs> yeah. That too. That part was the most intense part of it. I mean, can you, ex- can you explain what happened?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, yes and no. I can yeah. explain part of what happened. Sure. Uh, I was... At the time, it was 2011. And I was going to grad school. And I was living in a house of about 10 people. Uh, Well... No, there's probably about 12 or 14 people living there at the time, whatever. But uh started to, I don't really even know how to describe it. It was as if I had insomnia, except that I would actually be asleep. It would just be as if my brain would, wouldn't shut off. And so for of a like, period of about three days... This just kept happening where I would like go to sleep, but it never felt like my brain was actually shutting down to get the rest that it needed to the point where i uh I had some kind of psychotic break, and you know it was not the people I was living with did not know how to handle that in any way, shape or form, and then uh. I know I was acting really erratically, but I just had no control over it. And I had no precedent for it in my own life. So, you know, like, I didn't really know what to do. And I did at a certain point go, you know, I had, like, gone to see somebody and gone into the hospital to do an intake, basically. And when I did that, I went with a friend And they told me they didn't want to admit me to the hospital. And I'm thinking, like, everybody around me is reacting really wildly to my behavior. Like, they're calling the fucking EMTs. Uh, You know, like, I don't know what's going on. And I don't know how to, like, really explain what's happening to me. And everyone around me would say that it seemed as if I was just talking in circles. It was just like my brain just had one circuit that it was running on. I would talk about one of five things. And I... You know, after I did the intake with the hospital and they didn't want to admit me, they basically suggested that I go to outpatient therapy, like group therapy. And I was like, that's not going to help me right now. I I knew that much. I knew enough to say, like, that's not what I need. And they didn't really – that was, like, of no consequence. But uh, the second day I went to group therapy, I went with my my best friend from high school who had flown – in from she was living in Chicago at the time and she was like when we got there somebody took her into a different office and I went to go look for her because I had been sitting there for a while and I was just like I don't know why I'm here I'm just trying to figure out where Jerick is whatever and by the time I found her they pulled me into this office. I had sat down for about not, no longer than five minutes. And the next thing I knew, they had called the ambulance for me. So they then carted me off to this hospital that was about... Forcibly. Yeah, well, no, not. it wasn't like I was being dragged. You know what I mean? I was just like, I mean, you guys are telling me that I'm going to the hospital and i'm not gonna fight you because that seems like it would be a bad idea and i'm not gonna do that so you know they were just sort of like we just want you to go to the hospital and i was like all right fuck it like i'll get in the ambulance that's fine you know at at that point what i had signed up for basically was like okay i'll go to the damn hospital because that's seems to be what is right right? and what
0: you were trying to do in the first place
1: right and i'm like i'll do like a three-day eval see where it goes and then i ended up there for about three weeks and while i was there it was just i mean it's i still don't really know what chemically was going on in my brain because the doctor at the hospital was sort of going back and forth thinking that maybe it was schizophrenia, maybe it was uh, bipolar disorder. But when he thought it was schizophrenia, he put me on lithium right away. And that shit fucked me up. That, like, I've never taken any sort of substance in my life that has made me feel uh, so incapacitated. And so that, I think, the process of, like, getting onto lithium and then off of lithium uh, in in that three-week span, like, it just made – my time there longer uh but i you know i was there for three and a half weeks and by the time i mean like all kinds of shit happened and i sort of detail it in this essay but uh by the time i left there northeastern had pulled their scholarship and you know, it was like I had all this backup, like I had all of this paperwork to say like this is really where I've been for the last three weeks. Like you've legally are not allowed to just sort of pull this because, because it was this kind of hospital and not of like uh for physical health. Right. And uh but it wasn't I did not have the willpower or the support to legally fight it. Right. So I just kind of had to walk and, you know, uh, leaving me with like debt from the hospital and all this other shit. But it was, it was like, after all the testing, they didn't know what it was. They still didn't know. Like they did a brain scan, um, where they attached all these little electrodes to my skull. It was a fun one. Um, and they did that to test for schizophrenia because you can map it. And I, my, they were like, no, nah, you're fine. So, you know, it's sort of like, it made me personally just really pay a lot closer attention to my mental well being on a regular basis. And, but at the same time, it, it was, it's this really, uh, strange and trying thing to have had this experience where it's like some shit that nobody wants to talk about, you know?
0: Right. and But it hasn't happened again. I mean, like you've paid attention to your mental well-being you were you under like a specific stress at the time that it happened? I mean like grad school is stressful, but was it like particularly bad at that moment or not? I don't
1: really? know. No, it, it wasn't. Was, so it wasn't you know what I mean? Don't even like I didn't know what the fucking
0: precedent was.
1: Right. And I, I still don't really know what triggered it. And I think about uh I'm like, okay, so like what what like chemically was I doing something different? You know, like maybe I was trying to quit smoking and like my brain reacted weirdly or something, but Eat, like, none none of those things necessarily make sense, um, but it, it hasn't happened since. I mean, and I, I know just from living my life that I, I probably, like, there are times where I deal with, like, exceptionally high anxiety, and, and that could have triggered it, but I don't know what kind of anxiety attack lasts for a month
0: like that. You know what I mean? So did I mean, and you were feeling that shit while you were there, some of it, or you? I mean, but you were also fucked up on lithium, so you like don't even really know what the relationship is,
1: right? And and the other thing is, I'm a restless motherfucker. So yeah. you lock me in a psych ward, and I'm on a, a hallway that I can't leave. I was losing it. I was losing it because after I was like day three, and I realized like I'm not going home. Uh, i just to just move my body i would just walk i would pace up and down the fucking hallway because there was nothing else to do and so that led to the nurses doing things like being like oh okay well here's a couple of pills and it would always like have some shit in it like ativan benadryl anything that would knock me out just so that i wouldn't be walking up and down the hall like this yeah, that's fucked up. so all, it's just like getting knocked out <laughs> for most of the time uh just so it wouldn't be a nuisance, you know what I mean? So, and, like, yeah, it's hard not to feel like be- being in a psych ward is an anxiety-producing situation. Yeah. You know, like, it's it's already fucked up when you're in a place where you don't feel like the staff gives a shit. And the people around you, you know, it's like, I had a roommate pull me out of bed in the middle of the night, and then she went and she tried to suffocate somebody else, like, crazy shit i had one roommate who told me one time we were just going to sleep and she was just like you know what casey i wish you'd die and i literally sat up in bed and i went do you want to talk about it (laughs) she didn't say shit and i was like i'm gonna make sure you fall asleep first because you want me dead like what what did i do to you today uh so it's not exactly it's certainly not a healing space
0: yeah yeah so i'm I mean, were you not allowed, able to get out? Like, did you, were like, oh, it's time for me to go. And they're like, nope.
1: Oh, yeah. I talked to, every single time I talked to the psychiatrist, I was just like, I would like to leave now. And he kept advising against it. So, you know, it was also really strange because, you know, and I write about this in the essay, but he didn't tell me until I was there for two weeks the The reason why, legally, he was... Because I didn't press back against when he would say that I couldn't leave. I'd just be like, I mean, whatever, you're the fucking doctor. What am I really going to do right now? Um, it, like, my family was not around to advocate for me. My friends couldn't advocate for me because they're not... Legally, they can't, right? So, uh, it's just me, and I'm not going to fight this dude. But part of it was that um, when I went from the group therapy place over to the hospital somebody in some report said that i pulled a knife on somebody and the thing is the doctor the psychiatrist at the hospital didn't tell me that until i was there for about two weeks and the way he told me was he said uh we know why you're here right and i was just like no like I know what I know why I think I'm here but I feel like you're asking me something really specific. And uh and he said, "Well, you pulled a knife on somebody in group therapy." And I was like, "What?"
0: Yeah, like no. Like
1: literally I get that I could easily be gaslighted right now. Like I'm in a position where that is the easiest thing to do to me, lie to me about what I've done, but that doesn't even make sense. And that was the thing is it drove me crazy because I was like, mm, if I pulled a knife on somebody and you're just telling me now, who else knows about this? Because where's the, where's the knife? Cause I didn't come near with anything. I didn't have a change of clothes. You know, it was, like, in the hospital for the first, like, three days because they don't let anybody come in and see you. Like, no clean clothes, (laughs) not a change of underwear, no new socks. And there certainly wasn't a knife on me. And the other thing that confused the fuck out of me is, like, if I pulled a knife on somebody, why on earth am I in here and not in jail? Like, why weren't the police called? Like, how is it even possible that you think that I did this? And there are all these things that, like... If I didn't remember, something would have happened to signal that I had done this, and nothing. And uh, what was weird is like, the doctor would talk to my mom, and the social worker would only talk to my dad. And so my dad had not heard the story about the knife, but my mom had heard the story, and she just hadn't said anything to me. And you know, I immediately like when I the doctor said that to me, I called my best friend, who was in this the the uh, group therapy place at the time and was just like, Jericho, what are they talking about? And she had no idea. She was like, I was physically in the building. I think I would have known if people pulled a knife on somebody. So that was a whole other scenario that I was like, I don't, I don't understand how that occurred, but I do understand that because that report was written, the doctor had jurisdiction to just say, you got to stay for as long as I tell you you have to stay. Right. Because you were physically threatening other people. Yeah, tell
0: you're no longer a threat to yourself or someone else. Right. Well, that sounds pretty (laughs) harrowing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Do you, I mean, so that's an experience. It was, what, five years ago now? Yeah. And, like, but it has had a lot of lasting repercussions. Sure, I mean it's totally changed your life. Yeah, you ended up in New York. You wouldn't have ended up there, right? N- you ended up here. I right. mean, in the, in some ways, for that exact reason.
1: Right, right. And I think what's interesting in like the the scheme of things in my life, it's like if I had if that hadn't happened, or if for whatever reason that had happened, I'd stayed at Northeastern. I would still, I would be like pretty close to finishing my doctorate. In, in history. history, yeah. In world history. I would have done, a. would be working on a doctorate probably about global uses of prisons. And I would never have, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have been in New York ever. I wouldn't have applied to Right House probably. I'd still be living in Boston.
0: Yeah. And you, so how do you feel about that? I mean, j- j- It's a weird thing. I mean, it's like impossible. You know, you get into the like, uh, oh, how could my whole life have been different? But it's like, how do you feel about the fact that you've said, I'm going to be a poet and like a writer instead of historian?
1: I feel fucking great about it. I mean, I literally one of the funniest things like when you're in grad school For me, I took these classes that you had to take that were the required for to graduate with a history degree. And I remember so distinctly um, one of the first days of this one class with my thesis advisor. She asked, you know, why we're there. And I was like, you know, it's like I'm either going to do this and be a historian or I'm going to be a poet. And everybody in the class laughed so hard. They were like, you can't be a poet. Poets make no money. And now. I have this degree in history and I'm like, I I don't know where you guys are, but I'm here in this house that I won with poems. So there's, there's that. So they're like, that feels cool just because it's like, oh, I'm doing that thing that every single poet doesn't believe that they can do um, by happenstance. And then at the same time, part of, I would say almost, The only reason, really, that I wasn't pursuing a career in writing is because in my head there was no way that I was going to succeed. And and I also didn't want to go to school for that. I didn't want to go to school for writing. I hated, I took one creative writing class in undergrad and I hated it. And I didn't want to make my profession ruin the thing that I loved doing.
0: Right. And then at some point you're like, wait, if my profession is the thing that I love doing, like, I'll just get to do that more. Yeah. Which is like kind of a good feeling. Yeah.
1: And I also don't necessarily know that I would get, I mean, I I had like a book out when I was in grad school, but it wasn't, it's not quite the same as now where people are like, oh yes, the poet who won the house, right? Uh, Where it's like part of my title or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a useful thing that, I mean, other than the house that came from right house was just being like. I'm that poet that won that house and right. like that they have such a good publicity campaign that it's like people everywhere are like, Oh, don't they give houses to writers in Detroit? Like I've heard that from a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're like, yep, I know those people.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I had somebody come up to me at a party the other day and they're like, do you know write a house? And I was like, I won their first house. And then it was all a ruse because they knew that <laughs> they had, they knew. And then they just, they just used that as an entry point to the conversation, but it was funny. So, I mean, on a certain level, like, I love history, you know, like, I, uh, I have a strong passion for historical content and building it, and I still get to do those projects. It's not like, it's just that now I don't necessarily feel as though there's one path to doing the work that I want to do.
0: So, would you be willing to take us out of this interview by reading a poem? Oh, I could do that. I could do that. I have them all right here.
1: Oh, yeah. That makes it way easier. Yes, it does. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Well, which section to choose from, really? I guess. This poem is called Lower Ninth, April 2006. Bad Moon Rising came on the radio on the Pontchartrain Causeway Bridge. The orange X's and the tally of bodies, TFW, a blood hex that says do not cross this threshold without a triage of masks. We unraveled our sleeping bags in a third floor classroom at St. Mary of the Angels. Yankees come south, unsure how else to help the living rebuild. On a chalkboard, a survivor's message. We stayed for three days waiting for the Coast Guard, and when they flew over, they ignored us. We ran out of food and water. We had to go. They left us here to die. R.I.P. Trayvon, Yana S.J., Big Eric, Lil' Susie, Mikey, Trice Lumumba, O.G. Fred, Victor, Gracie, Sandy B., Air Jordan, Junior King, Mir Rice, Mr. Evers, Sin, the Reverend Doctor, Rennie Ma. I spent the week hitting bathroom tiles with a sledgehammer or trying to salvage photo albums and school books. The Red Cross tried to feed us hot dogs as if it was our block while we were eating Boys and red stripe on a stoop. Packs of dogs gone feral patrolled the unlit parking lots, and plenty of locals would tell you how they heard the government detonate the levee themselves. Two. On the third day, new white folk arrived and unrolled their bags. Two pony-tailed girls read the chalkboard and called it a lie. A circle of ghosts sucked their teeth. When they took their erasers to the board I wanted to tackle them but froze in disbelief at the haywire minds of savages their insistence upon looking dead into our ineffable faces and treating our many deaths as our biggest deceptions
0: and our only proper attire. Cool. So this kind of... Comes back to one of my earlier questions about like that one feels like I'm not sure whether you experienced that or not. Like, did you go if you went down there, to, you know, in some helping effort, or if those names came from a specific place? And like, I had all those questions, and I'm like, th- that one was unclear to me. Do you know? Do I do, do I know, you know do I know <laughs> whether that's Would you from tell my life? Yes. I,
1: <laughs> do I know whether I tell you? Yes, I do know. I actually, if I can find it. Uh, I have a photograph of the chalkboard. Um, I was down there uh, in April 06 just on spring break. Um, it was one of those times where I felt like seeing what happened in New Orleans. It, I felt really compelled to go down and try to help in what way I could. Uh, what the story of the poem is not actually true so the erasing of the chalkboard didn't actually happen and the list of names isn't the actual list of names so uh there's a thing that happens in this poem where it becomes sort of uh, a surreal version of what really happened where we were sitting in this classroom and these girls just were like that's not they didn't believe it was real which was so bizarre to me i was like how could you be sitting like why are you here Like, why are you here if you don't, if you can't even believe that uh, the people who stayed here when the flood was happening uh, needed help like this? It just, it was mind-boggling. But uh, the list of names is a list of people who've, for the most part, died in the last few years due to police brutality some form or another um you know like there's definitely like mere rice it's spelled m-e-r-e rice but it's Tamir rice i think the first one's supposed to be trayvon martin uh i think it's every person that was killed in charleston in the church shooting um mikey is just you know it's like every single one is has a reference point and so it becomes this this greater narrative to me about this idea of looking right at what's happening to black folks in this country for, for certain white people looking right at what's happening and just pretending like it's not happening.
0: Right. And then it just becomes like just a metaphor for the overall neglect of the system. Right. Right. As was like so prominent in the, in Katrina.
1: Right. And yeah. that so that's sort of where that poem comes from. And I think, uh, I don't I don't know. I've read that poem out loud in front of people and people are like, I can't fucking believe they erased that chalkboard. And I'm like, Exactly. That's why that's why it's in the narrative of the poem is because it's something that to you hearing it maybe you feel like that's like it's it's such a small thing. Cause it's not like shooting somebody. It's not like, you know, somebody's out here, uh being Zimmerman in my poem but it's just enough to make somebody be like holy shit it's like yeah that's what historical erasure feels like that's what it feels like to have someone tell you all lives matter <laughs> when you're just trying to like express that your life matters in this context uh
0: yeah um all right well where can people get your get your book uh sibling dot it,
1: come it comes out on the ides of march uh, so unless you're Julius Caesar, you should be around to purchase it. <laughs> it's uh, the fifteenth. It's available for pre-order now. So,
0: and how big is the run?
1: Uh it's I DK. I don't really. That's not not, not in charge purchase. of that part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it'll go until we gotta print more. We'll see how it goes. I, I actually haven't even checked. It. I don't know how pre-sales are going, but fingers
0: crossed. It's well. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. yeah. I'll buy it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Casey. Yeah. great. Thank you for having me. That's it. That's the interview. I hope you enjoyed it. Casey's book, The Dozen, is currently available for purchase at siblingrivalrypress.com. I... I expect you to buy it, and that's all. Until next time, I am out.